Welcome to the RAB Poetry Podcast, where we bring you the stories behind the words, where every poem has a story behind it. Our podcast is a journey through the hearts and minds of poets as we delve into the inspirations, struggles, and triumphs that fuel their work. In each episode, we'll feature a poem, sharing the underlying stories and reciting the most powerful and moving pieces. From various poems on wide variety of topics and rising poets and authors, our podcast is the perfect companion for anyone who loves poetry and the power of words. Whether you're a seasoned poetry enthusiast or just getting started, you'll find something to love on the RAB Poetry Podcast. So tune in and let the stories of our poets take you on a journey of inspiration and emotion. Listen to the REB Poetry Podcast, available on all major platforms now. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to uh, Fandom Power. Of course, I'm your host, uh, Wes R. Scott. And uh, once again, well, actually, it's a little different today. I'm only joined by one half of my very own Rogue Squadron. It's uh, Andrew Daw. Yo. Hurricane Fiona is uh, hitting the east coast of uh, of Canada currently. And uh, Hank, we know you're out there. We just checked in with you. We know you're okay. But for the sake of this recording um that is why we are only uh flying two men today <laughs> down one we are listen if you are uh watching or listening to our show for the first time welcome to fandor this one is our uh, latest review series where over the course of the next nine weeks we're going to be uh, breaking down uh, every episode each new episode of the new live action star wars television series and or currently streaming on disney plus you can think of our show if you will like an annotated audiobook i would say with a whole lot of cliff notes <laughs> exactly um because just like our previous star wars review series uh the breakdown it's beat for beat it's note for note and uh, we'll be talking through all the plot points the easter eggs and of course any of the greater star wars lore connections that we're able to identify as we move throughout the show but before we get to the breakdown of uh, episode one we need to talk about first impressions Mm. andy what do you think so far i hate to say it but this is my least favorite star wars product so far you're not alone in that i'm not gonna like final judge on it until i've seen the whole thing but it did not hit the ground running for me I think this one uh, was a was a hard pill to swallow. Recently, we spoke about uh, showrunner Tony Gilroy, uh, who wrote the show, who's created the show, talking about uh, cynicism and fan service, and uh, we kind of talked about what we thought that meant. And I think I have a much better understanding of where he was going with that now that we've seen the first three episodes. I understand fan service, but in even the first episode there's a couple opportunities he missed and it's not even to like deliver fan service but right. just to further emphasize what's going on within the galaxy i think part of the issue is that the the reveals as they were uh, they don't come in any sort of they're not there's not a giant exposition dump all at once to bring no. you up to speed as i was saying earlier to hank we were chatting and i said 
Andor is like a is like an onion, and they are peeling the layers ever so thinly. Yeah. And it's like they're pulling a layer out from the middle before they pull the outer skin off. And some and, and to me, they seem like almost out of order sometimes. Yeah, definitely cutting back and forth with the flashback piece. He is doing that, but I get why he's doing that because some of it mirrors present day. So I'm going to talk about those flashbacks as we go through the breakdown because I think they're important in the sense that they address some uh, topical issues that I don't think Star Wars has really addressed before, no. namely colonialism. Mm-hmm. I definitely have a better understanding why, because I thought, oh my gosh, they're they're dropping three episodes, and at first I thought that dropping three episodes was sort of accounting for the the delay in the release date. But after watching them, I realized that you almost need you need those three episodes because they work. I don't know if they work as well on their own. Like if you just gave me one episode, the first episode, I don't know if I would be as invested as I am having all three. Because to me, all three episodes kind of serve as a as a feature length pro- yeah. prologue, if you will. Yeah. Uh, like right. Hank had said. Uh, in the chat is it too late to change it to blandor <laughs> blandor <laughs> um discourse over the last few days has uh, mimicked that uh, there's been a lot of uh, wow this is really slow uh, seems to be the common uh, the common line of of thought throughout um and i'm not going to lie first time through now granted man i was up at the crack of dawn watching this thing and i was really really tired when i watched it so much so that on my second viewing, when I started to uh, watch it through with the uh, descriptive audio and the subtitles, I actually fell asleep um, as I was sort of going through my episode. Now, you know, not feeling well, having had a you know a few rough nights earlier in the week. Could have affected it. Yeah, maybe. But I've gotten through it a couple of times and I've, I've re-watched, um, obviously for the purpose of our show, I've re-watched it quite microscopically and just like the other star wars uh, tv series that we've reviewed i am much more forgiving and i'm not you know what forgiving is not the right word um i'm far more enthusiastic now that i've looked at it under the microscope because even up till what i don't know midnight last night i was still i was still thinking really really hard about the first three episodes in fact i i sent a message to you guys in the chat about some thoughts that I had for uh, for episode uh, three, actually mm-hmm. two and three. So I like where you're going with that too. Yeah, me too. It makes it, it makes things way more compelling. As we've said, everything in Star Wars is intentional, and and we'll get to that later. Um, sticking with sort of just our general impressions, Cassian. Wow, um, is he the character that you know and remember from Rogue One? Uh, not yet. <laughs> no he's a rogue he's a thief and uh now i guess technically murderer <laughs> i said uh quote that he is a uh, morally bereft grifting con man <laughs> <laughs> but he's got this really shiny veneer yeah and you know he's despicable but he's like the lovable despicable guy i mean the way that he talks, everybody that he talks to i mean certain this man's a fast talker mm-hmm. but he's able to smooth things over and talk his way through a number 
of situations um, that really just may leave you going, God, this guy is, dare I say, slimy? Mm. Borderline. <laughs> uh, all right. You want to get into the breakdown? Let's go for it. All right, let's do it. Uh, this one, it's uh, episode one of Andor. Oh, interestingly enough, you brought this up yesterday. Yeah, at I didn't the realize time, it either. Yeah, yeah. At the time of release, all three episodes did not have a title. They were just episodes one, two, and three. Yeah. But sometime, what, between uh, uh, Thursday, Thursday and, and Friday? Yeah, they shifted. Um. There was a uh, an update to the, the Disney Plus listing, and now each episode has a title. So episode one, it's called uh, Casa. Of course, it aired uh, with the other two episodes, Wednesday, September 21st, uh, 2022. This one, it's uh, written by uh, Tony Gilroy, who was, uh, of course, the writer for uh, the Rogue One screenplay. He did the screenplays for the first four Born, uh, Born movies. Um, as well as directed uh, the Bourne Legacy. That's the one with uh, Jeremy Renner. Yes. And uh, let's see, our our director for this one, it's Toby Haynes. Now, he's done four episodes of the Amazon original show Utopia. Um, he did the USS Callister episode of Black Mirror, as well as uh, four episodes of uh, Doctor Who between uh, 2010 and 2011. So that's the, what, Matt Smith run of uh, Doctor Who. This episode, it's uh, 34 minutes and 36 seconds without your titles and credits or a much healthier 42 minutes if you watch it to the bitter end, which, by the way, I did because I keep thinking, my God, one day. This is what Marvel has done to me. <laughs> Marvel has made me stay to the bitter end of everything I watch now in the anticipation that maybe there'll be a little teaser. Well, funny you say that because the last two episodes of She-Hulk have not had that teaser at the end. Oh, interesting. I haven't seen the latest one yet, so uh, all right. I'll have to I go like check that out when we're done today. One thing I did notice at the at the beginning of the credits, yep. uh, and it kind of threw me with the Tony Gilroy, is like, He's on there as writer, producer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Producer, Show creator. He, yeah. Like, <laughs> He's whoa. got a lot going on. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, hats off to him. I got to say, I do like I do like what he's doing. And I overall do like the direction that the show is going. Um, but we're going to get to that. All right. What have we got so far? We get um, uh, like with the other live action Star Wars series, we get that same metallic uh, Star Wars title logo with all of the revolving character heads. Yep. And in uh, keeping with the tradition of adding a new character for each show, we get uh, a shot of our new droid. Uh, of course, that's uh, B2EMO. I kept wanting to call him Emo. <laughs> well, they call it b in the show they do call b for short or some uh even i think there's a b2 reference there at one point but i mean this guy this character gives me um um uh, flavors of uh marvin from uh, hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy so emo just seems so fitting there because it's like there's a lot of like oh kind of moments for this character design wise he's kind of like a hybrid between bba and your r2 you know what i got out of this one uh black hole vibes yes. disney's black hole like yes. uh, uh bob and yeah. um uh not vincent what's the other floating uh uh I the know other the, one the other r2d2 knockoff 
um oh my god the old minor talking guy you know who i'm talking I about i do that's really right down to the whole like head sort of off kilter and yeah the, the retractable kind of head thing again trash can design trash can on wheels yeah Makes um, it more simplistic to drive them around the set though yeah yeah um i would say by far I, I generally i don't talk about the title the titles a whole lot this one um it's very beautiful with that uh eclipse in the back that uh the the title cards roll a full down mm-hmm. to reveal sort of a uh that eclipse becomes sort of a proto uh rebel alliance symbol by far this is the most uh beautiful title sequence i think of the uh of any of the shows really like it's on the nose like it's the dawning of the rebellion <laughs> so true yeah 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 all right so the um the episode crossfades and, and we open uh and it's a uh, night rainy night on the planet uh, morlana one and we get our first look at title character cassian andor as he's walking across a long uh, causeway some text fades in and it reads Morlana one prox uh, preox Morlana corporate zone BBY five. And that's pretty cool because for the first time we actually get an on-screen usage of the term BBY. Nice. I mean, this is, but we've been using this term on and off uh, in star Wars since what? 1996. Um, bby of course is a reference to uh before the battle of yavin where the battle of yavin sort of counts as a year zero as it were sort of that's sort of how we measure time and it's really meant for us as the fans mm-hmm. um but to have this reference come up on screen that's kind of cool it's a nice little nod to uh to us i think as fans <laughs> fan service already <laughs> is that going to come up a lot fan service maybe there are some fan service i think there's some fan service moments but again we already had this, dis- yeah, this discussion what, what, constitutes what constitutes fan service? service are you a fan of star wars do you want to be serviced of course you do you don't want to see star wars without star wars stuff i don't know there's some people out there that might want to go get serviced in the next scene fair enough <laughs> All right, but we'll get there. There's also another uh, another lore connection here besides the uh, the BBY thing. I want to talk about the uh, the Preox Morlana text um, as we're going to come to find out over the the course of the episode that Preox is this large corporation that kind of acts like the governing body of Morlana One, and this kind of uh, corporate governance it goes all the way back to uh, the original Han Solo trilogy of novels. Uh, written by Brian Daly uh, between 1979 and uh, 1980. Those are uh, Han Solo's Revenge, Han Solo at Star's End, and uh, concluded the trilogy with Han Solo and the Lost Legacy. That setting would later get uh, adapted and expanded for the Star Wars role-playing game in 1993 with uh, Han Solo and the corporate sector. Hmm. So in Star Wars Legends, the corporate sector was basically a, a region of space where corporations would uh, set up shop to escape the bureaucracy of the Republic government. Eventually, they coalesced into their own sort of government, which was called the Corporate Sector Authority. Hmm. Fast, so, yeah, go ahead. And like Rick and Morty, to get away from the government, they became a government. <laughs> Again, I am so out of touch with oh. Rick and Morty. I don't know the reference. Oh, you got to watch that show. Okay. During the reign of the empire, the emperor actually allowed the corporate sector authority to retain their own system of governance as well as their own private security. 
Um, but it was on the condition that several companies within the corporate sector authority did things <clears throat> for the greater good of the imperial citizenry. And that meant funneling a lot of credits uh, to the imperial government, as well as uh, raw materials and manufactured goods directly into the imperial military industrial complex. And I think we kind of see some of that within the show. In canon, things remain uh, largely unchanged, except that uh, the empire viewed the corporate sector as a haven for former separatists. And around 18 BBY, just after the Clone Wars, uh, Moff Tarkin, newly minted Moff Tarkin, invaded and occupied the salient system on the edge of the corporate sector um, to send a clear message to Defiant Star Systems and to establish a staging ground in case the empire wanted to uh, further. make further yeah into the corporate sector um it's not made expressly clear in this episode whether or not that this is a literal interpretation of the corporate sector but the one thing that is clear is that the preox company as they kind of call themselves at the very least has been contracted by the empire to basically run uh, this it's system it's for it's them um, and of course that does include their own private security force as well. Mm-hmm. So there you go. There's your biggest lore connection so far. Having crossed the causeway, Cassian makes his way down a set of stairs along the staircase. We see several transparent bubbles lining the sides of the street, each with a different alien inside that reacts to him as he passes by. Well, the scene is very reminiscent of the famous red light district of Amsterdam, where sex workers would dance in the windows of the brothels as people uh, pass by outside. At the bottom of the staircase, Cassian crosses the street to enter a well-lit building. There are no windows, but there is a doorman who scans him while cautioning, no weapons, no comms, no credit, and no nonsense before letting him in. Don't mess around. Yeah, it tells him that uh, the upstairs lounge is closed or something, but, uh, you know, he can go in. So typical, whatever, you know, middle of the week night uh, in your, uh, in your, I guess it'd be blue, blue adult establishment, blue light district, green light district. It's kind of blue green, I guess. Yeah. All right. Inside the establishment, Cassian pauses to uh, look at a hollow dancer while an alien bartender offers him a drink. Uh, from across the bar, there are two uniformed men uh, already seated, seated, and uh, they notice Cassian's interest in the bartender. And one of them says, uh, don't even think about it, adding that uh, the bartender would only send him home crying. <laughs> Cassian, of course, ignores the two men and he just turns and watches the hollow dancer. This is my first missed opportunity. In what sense? In that rather than the alien they chose. I see no reason why that couldn't have been a random Twi'lek. Maybe that was the, uh, you know, going back to the fan service thing. Maybe that's kind of what Tony Gilroy was getting at. Like that there's a subversion there that we expected it to be a, a Twi'lek. Yeah. So having it be some other species is like, Oh, I guess they're not all limited to sex slaves. Others have been brought in as well. Well, mind you, what she says next kind of gives the implication that they come and go of their free will, but. Again, though, I mean, if we're if we're patterning this section uh, of the episode on Amsterdam, I mean, the legal sex trade in Holland yeah. is kind of like that. Yeah. All right. Some details about our bartender here. This is uh, Caroline Green. Now, you you uh, may not recognize her immediately, but we saw her in uh, The Last Jedi during the uh, Canto Bite sequence where she played a character by the name of Sentada Rasad. 
More interestingly, though, she is Gal Gadot's stand-in. Really? Yeah, she st- uh, stood in for her on uh, both Wonder Woman films as well as uh, Justice League. All right. Uh, next up, we've got the the two uniform guys. The first guy, the bigger guy who does the talking. This is a, a character by the name of Kravis. He's played by uh, Lee Boardman, um, who appeared in the miniseries Rome, where he played uh, Timon. He also played uh, Badger in Jack the Giant Slayer, nice. um, as well as uh, Amerigo Vespucci in uh, Da Vinci's Demons. Don't believe I've seen that one. Uh, Lee Boardman has also done uh, a ton of voice work in uh, video games. Thematically speaking, if you look through his list of credits, you'll see sort of this like similar themes coming up. Uh, you know, tough guy. Well, it rolls here. <laughs> his partner is a character by the name of uh, Verlo. This uh, character is played by uh, Stephen White. Stephen White appeared uh, as Reggie Weller in uh, Highlander: The Source, a movie that I think we all kind of forgot about i definitely um, forgot about that one some of us probably tried to you know erase it from our uh <laughs> from our collective consciousness uh where islander is concerned we pick on highlander a lot on this show a little bit <laughs> it's easy to do <laughs> he also appeared in the uh the bbc series the great outdoors where he played a character by the name of joe and he has the coveted name of guy <laughs> guy in uh, men in black international <laughs> now i don't know if that's like generic guy you know like yeah like dude with sandwich Could you know be. like some of the, the strange uh, uh credits that they they give some of these people well they had, they definitely elevated the title of guy with that ryan reynolds movie though free guy yeah, yeah. all right a moment later uh a madam it's actually she's referred to as the hostess uh mm-hmm. in the uh in the credits but uh for the purposes of our show, I shall refer to her as the madam because, let's face it, that's really what she is. Yeah. The madam enters uh, the bar room from a back chamber and approaches Cassian and begins to make some small talk. She asks him uh, if he's alone tonight and, and uh, if he's been here before. When he tells her that it's his first time, she says that he's picked a good night because it's quiet. Now, from across the bar, Kravis interrupts the conversation. Now, he's clearly agitated. As he tells the madam that uh, they were there first, trying to defuse the situation, the madam tells him that a, another lady will help them. But uh, Kravis says that he doesn't uh, care or want the other woman. The madam gives him a stern look as she tells him, "Behave." Cassian snickers at the admonishment uh, leveled at the two men, and Kravis sarcastically retorts, "Oh, she's funny, ain't she?" You can't be messing around in there. Our hostess, as she's uh, as she's credited with, that's uh, Margaret Clooney. Nice. Margaret Clooney appeared uh, as the receptionist, uh, receptionist number two in uh, uh, Johnny English uh, Reborn. Uh, she also played uh, uh, Harriet, the Duchess of Sutherland uh, in the Victoria, uh, Victoria film, as well as uh, Shower Sarah in uh, Last Christmas. Hmm. Last Christmas, a Christmas movie, recent Christmas movie, actually, with, um, oh, my Lord, uh, Game of Thrones, um, um, Queen of Dragons. Still haven't caught up on it. Terminator, uh, Amelia Clark. Thank you very much. Brain, brain is working. <laughs> Amelia Clark. Now, the madam turning back to Cassie and apologizes for the interruption, and uh, he tells her that, you know, he should, uh, she should take care of them. When she says why, he reminds her that it's a company town. 
you know, reference to that corporate thing again. Mm-hmm. Dismissively, she says, well, they're just sentry guards. And uh, for a brief moment, the, her facade of uh, pleasant demeanor cracks and she kind of lets it slip. Well, they just like to play cops and adding that uh, it's really annoying. Then getting back to the matter at hand, she asks Cassie in uh, if he's looking for something special. Uh, and he tells her that a friend of his told him that a girl from Canary was working in this brothel. The madam says she's familiar with the planet and asks why he's looking for this girl. She wonders aloud if he's feeling nostalgic and looking for an old girlfriend. The Cassian says, uh, I don't have a girlfriend. So uh, the madam excuses herself uh, to go to the back room and check, uh, check on the girl that he's asking about. That veneer I was talking about, how he's able to just sort of smooth talk his way through. This is a great example of, uh, of that. Yeah. Now with the madam uh, gone, the visibly agitated uh, Kravis glares at Cassian and uh, the two men lock glances for a moment. And the guard asks, is there something amusing? Not phased by the big man. Cassian takes a sip from his drink as he says, definitely not before setting it down on the bar, all the while never breaking eye contact with uh, Kravis. As Cassian stares unfazed at the two men, uh, Kravis shoots a snarky remark. Oh, that's a hard look for a little thing like you. Verlo rhetorically adding, he's not laughing now, is he? They definitely have that uh, abuse of power vibe. You do get that sense, eh? Like, um, yeah, abuse of authority. It's there in spades. We're going to see that uh, um, exercised even more here very shortly. Returning from the back room, the madam tells Cassian that there was a girl from Canary working there, but she's left several months earlier. She does offer him uh, another choice of girl from uh, the planet Tahina, saying that uh, the girl from Tahina has the same large dark eyes that he might be looking for. Is there an implication here that people from Canary and Tahina commonly have similar? Dark features. features maybe i don't know um i should also note that i could not find any references to either canary or tahina um so i guess these are both new planets that are being introduced right here in Andor for the first time mm-hmm. it is funny though that she's describing them like having exclusive features yeah when later on in uh episode three they're just you know random human oh yeah so they're actually in, in this episode, they make a point to say, uh, canary human, mm. the idea that humans are, pro, you know, uh, prolifer, uh, uh, are spread across the galaxy, um, but slightly different per planet. Well, and this is another thing, another legends thing, uh, we talk about, especially in the role-playing game, there's, there's humans and then there's what's called near humans. And in a lot of cases, uh, I, I guess the short version is. Near humans essentially are human in, in most respects, save for minor, you know, trait differences that make uh, make them adapted to whatever, you know, environment that they live in, whether it's, you know, skin tones or maybe, you know, the, they breathe a different, you know, nitrogen oxygen mix or whatever, but just minor changes, yeah. right? Okay, well, Cassie impresses the madam asking if she knows where the canary girl went. And uh, in response, the madam drops the pleasantries and plainly says, what are you? Seriously, boyfriend, husband? Cassian shoots a quick glance around the room before he breaks into a whisper, telling the madam, I'm looking for my sister. The madam tells him plainly that people come and go and that whoever the girl is, she's gone. 
And uh, turning to walk away, she suggests to Cassian that uh, he should leave. But as she tries to walk away, Cassian stops her with one last question. What was her name? But the madam just stares at him incredulously and retorts, no one here uses their name before leaving Cassian staring at the floor in despair. Makes sense. Uh, it totally makes sense. I mean, you wouldn't want to, you've just like a stage name. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it's like going to a stripper. You ever talk to a stripper now, now on the pole candy. I'm sure her name is really candy. Mm -hmm. All right. Leaving the, the brothel the same way that he came in, Cassian trudges back out into the rain and uh, it's not too long before he's uh, set upon by Kravis and Verlo. I guess they didn't want to wait around to be serviced. No, um, it's obvious that the two men have followed him intending to use their corporate authority uh, to intimidate him. Yeah. As they approach him from behind, they call out to stop, demanding to see his company ID. Getting closer, they continue threatening him with uh, parking fines and a visitor's curfew. When Cassian finally stops, Kravis pulls a blaster, demanding to see his ID. While raising his hands over top of his head, Cassian uh, tells the, uh, the corpos, as they are uh, uh, called, mm -hmm. that he has 300 credits in his coat pocket. Laughing, Kravis remarks, what a coincidence. That's almost exactly what it will take to cover the fine, the towing charges, and uh, their personal processing fee. <laughs> when they demand Cassian to produce the credits, he tells them that uh, he's not moving. They can take the credits from his pocket, and then he'll walk away, adding that uh, he doesn't need any surprises. It's kind of uh, telling for the current state of the world, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Don't you come get me. I'm not moving. Oh, absolutely. I mean, a uh, guy, you know, who, uh, you know, goes to pull his wallet out and gets shot because, you know, the police think, think he's, he's reaching for, something. yeah, yeah, exactly. So again, you know, this is just one more example of, of ways that this show is addressing real world, uh, topical issues, um, really that no other Star Wars, uh, property has really looked at. So it's, it's very, uh, uh grounded in that sense mm -hmm. kravis moves forward and presses the barrel of of uh of his weapon against uh, the back of cassian's head we see cassian wince like whoa like uh shit just got real right at the same time kravis directs his partner verlo to retrieve the credits now, the smaller man approaches cassian uh pulls down his hood and begins patting him down and uh, just for good measure, Kravis pistol whips him just because he can. Mm -hmm. More of that abuse. Big time. When Verlo comes up uh, empty-handed, Cassian tells him that uh, the money is in his other pocket. And uh, when Verlo crosses uh, Cassian's back, Cassian throws his head back really, really hard, uh, striking Verlo in the face, which knocks him down and out. Reactively, Kravis pulls the trigger, but Cassian was able to get a hand on his arm and push the blaster away before the gun went off, and uh, the shot misses wildly. The two men then struggle for control of the blaster until Cassian punches, throat punches Kravis, I might add, and then uh, tackles him to the ground, almost like uh, like the spear on <laughs> visions of, uh, of uh, Bill Goldberg there for a second. Mm -hmm. Following to the ground, Cassian slams Kravis's hand off the pavement until he can no longer hold the blaster and finally lets go. 
scrambling for the blaster and to get to his feet cassian turns the tide shouting at kravis tell me now tell me what to do let's hear it boss with his own gun now pointed directly at his face kravis does what every bully does in his position and cowers in fear flips so fast yeah talk about uh flip the script there yeah please don't hurt me we're at a point here in the episode where as i like to say uh decisions were made yes and uh this you know all of the fast talk you know con man stuff aside um i think that this is a new situation for cassian i don't think he's been like it's implied that he's been in he's been in his fair share of fights trouble yeah even like outnumbered like you know the way he handles that I'm sure he spent a few nights in the drunk tank or, you know, like minor charges, but I mean, because they do go on to say that he's got an Imperial record. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, Cassian orders the man uh, to get himself and his partner to their feet. And when Kravis rolls verso Verlo's limp body on his back, um, the man's unblinking thousand yard stare is a revelation to both of them. Kravitz tells Cassian that Verlo isn't breathing. Cassian accuses him of, of faking, but Kravis, uh, full of anguish, showed he's not. And it's more than convincing. It's one hell of a headbutt. Oh my God, yeah. Well, did the headbutt kill him or did the, the you know, the hitting his head Was off there the a ground? Or something yeah, who knows? We, we don't see, see that. Um, you know, kind of perfect storm may break the bridge of his nose. Mind you, I mean, his face looks looks pretty good considering he just got you know smoshed Mm -hmm. um but he's at a point now like this is the decision oh yeah it it just escalated from uh you know back alley fight to you know pivotal moment yeah the 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 crux that will forever change the trajectory of of this guy's you know of this guy's life really yeah Cassian stares blankly at the dead man while Kravis sneers up at him. You killed him. But Kravis quickly changes his demeanor and his tone as he looks up very submissively and he spits out uh, a plausible story of how Cassian didn't mean it. Um, That if they stick together, the two of them can convince the authorities that it was a misunderstanding and that Verlo fell hitting his own head. Well, as the uh, big man kneels before Cassian, pleading with him to use uh, to use the story, Cassian makes a very different choice and ends up shooting him point blank in the face. Yeah, I think he made the right choice, though. Considering how quick he flipped, it would not shock me if he just reflipped again. I agree, especially like, when we you can't trust the guy. You know, we get a some a little bit more sort of insight into who uh, Kravis is later on in the episode about mm. sort of his his career path as it were. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, not surprising that sure. Given, uh, given a chance to reclaim, uh, reclaim his weapon. Um, and even if he didn't, I'm sure like there would have been some kind of like, I'm going to get you yeah, down the road. I mean, this is <laughs> visions of rogue one when uh, Cassian uh, meets that informant at the beginning, like within the first five minutes of meeting the character, he like, he does exactly the same thing. He murders a guy. Yeah very different reasons for doing so but like you know what how was it so you wonder what how was it so easy for this this uh guy who's supposed to be a member of the rebel alliance to just murder like joe bob nobody mm-hmm. well maybe this is where it started 
not his first rodeo. No, absolutely not. And like, really, I mean, it goes against the Batman theory where, you know, the criminals just, you know, put them away in Arkham. They keep coming back. This eliminates him from coming back. That's true. So this is one last guy he has to watch over his shoulder for. That's true. Painting that picture of, of you know, um, um, morally questionable, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, Star Wars has long sort of presented a, um, a black and white kind of good guys wear white hats. You know, I mean, the Empire, well, Stormtroopers wear white, but you get what I mean. Yeah. Vader, the, the big bad of the original trilogy, you know, dude dressed in black. Um, Even down to Luke when he's uh, all in black, but has a little white flap that shows. Sure, sure. Just to reinforce it. But then there's Han Solo. <laughs> yeah, shades of gray. Yeah. Mind you, we didn't see Han Solo murder anybody. Except Greedo. Okay, well, there is that. Mind you. On shot first. Under, under duress, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was kind of glorified though. This is a this is a much more gritty take on the whole, you know. Yeah. I mean, Cassian shot first. That's there's no yeah. question of that. Pretty cut and um, dry. Yeah. But Han Solo was always sort of depicted as this like, eh, he's rough around the edges, but still has that heart of gold. Yeah, the golden heart thing. Cassian, not so much, I don't think. Well, for a moment, Cassian paces back and forth, his mind racing. He's not really sure what to do. And then we cut to uh, a scene. uh, It's the causeway, and Cassian is running for it, Um, running back across the causeway, not stopping as he looks over his shoulder to see if he's being followed. We cut to a starship as uh, it lifts off and departs Morlana 1. And uh, as the ship leaves orbit, we can see that Morlana 1 has at least one moon. Hmm. all right uh you know me i'm a starship guy i love ships uh best i can tell this is a new class of starship and uh i'm not even sure that this is a factory could be a uh, custom built i would hazard a guess to say that it is almost certainly cobbled together from uh, other ships couldn't find anything on this but um it's definitely what i would say a, a franken ship cobbled together from other ship parts we see these um Let's here. Let's push this ahead here. Um, what looks like Y-wing engines, sort of on it. The thing's got four engines. The canopy is uh, reminiscent of the Legends ship, Jaster's Legacy. I've talked about Jaster's Legacy before. Um, we've talked about that as maybe being sort of inspiration for uh, the Razor Crest. But again, it's got that same sort of swept-up hull, like a boat-shaped hull, like maybe it was almost amphibious. Of course, it's much flatter than that in this case. And of course, the four engines, which look like they made two of them anyway, look like they've been borrowed from a Y Wing, um, even if they've been maybe shortened just a little bit. Mm-hmm. I will say this if this is an actual, like, purpose built ship, like it was built, this is the way it rolled off the assembly line. I'm going to propose that it is in the same family as, uh, as the Y Wings, it has uh, some similar features. Although it is significantly wider, maybe it was like a, a Y-Wing RV, like a troop transport, maybe, or maybe, maybe even like a modified pleasure craft of some kind. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're not sure. I hope we get to see more of it. We do get to see it again uh, once more in this episode. I hope we see more of it later on or other cool looking weird ships. Mm-hmm. All right. We cut to the surface of uh, the planet Ferrix. This one is a, another planet within the Morlana system. And uh, unlike Morlana, one Ferrix is in what is designated as the free trade sector. 
A small red droid resembling a trash can trundles through the streets of uh, Ferrix City in the early morning dawn. It's uh, B2EMO, or B for short, as we've already established. Um, off to the side, you can see what appears to be a uh, lug beast sleeping against a building. Lug beast, if you don't remember, uh, first appeared in The Force Awakens. It was being ridden by uh, Tito, Tito, the character that tried to uh, net BB 8. If you remember that scene, mm-hmm. oh, this is a really cool, uh, cool thing. Uh, B2 EMO voiced by veteran puppeteer Dave Chapman. Dave Chapman was the puppeteer who actually was BB 8 throughout the sequel trilogy. There you go. Um, other credits include Lady Proxima and uh, the physical uh, part of Rio Durant from uh, Solo, a Star Wars story, as well as uh, the Emperor and uh, Ordon in uh, the dark crystal age of resistance nice so yeah he's been around uh creatures for a long time i desperately want another season of that one sadly it's not uh yeah unfortunately it was really good three carillion hounds uh, rush at b from uh, down the street and he collapses his body drawing in his four little limbs into what i described as a defensive posture mm-hmm Two of the hounds run right past while the third one stops to uh, relieve itself on the little droid. But uh, B, B deploys an arc welder, driving it off much in the same way that uh, R2-D2 did with Salacious Crumb back in uh, Jabba's Palace. Mm. Uh, Karelian hounds, by the way, we saw those before. They were introduced to us in uh, Solo, where uh, Moloch used a pair of them uh, tracking Han and Kira in the spaceport. To be fair, he does look like a bit of a fire hydrant <laughs> in that. But he's red. Mode. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Of course he does. <laughs> uh, fun fact: the uh, look of the Carillion Hound was inspired by the Death Dogs uh, from Willow. Mm. Yeah. Cutting to a scrapyard, very reminiscent of the one that uh, we saw back in Jedi Fallen Order and in the Bad Batch. Um, uh, the planet Bracca, actually. We see B slowly making his way down a cleared path towards the remains of a scrapped transport. The scrapyard appears to be uh, to stretch for several hundred meters, uh, if not for kilometers. And uh, looming in the background is what's left of a Venator-class Star Destroyer turned up on its edge. And uh, thanks to uh, some concept art from the show, we can confirm for sure that that is 100% a Venator. I knew it was a ship of some kind. At first I thought it was a, um, I thought it was a Confederate ship because I didn't think it was turned up on its side. I actually thought it was like, you know, like Grievous's cruiser, how the engines kind of have that staggered step up kind of look. But yeah, if you, uh, if you turn a Venator on its edge and I've, I've put one up here on the screen to sort of, you can sort of see the lines and uh, I've, I've traced the outline there. The, the CGI model there doesn't line up a hundred percent, but again, you know, they strip parts of absolutely They're constantly stripping these things. Plus there's the, whatever racking system that it's actually cradled on. Mm-hmm. Interesting way to break a uh, break apart a ship though. I mean, that is a big difference from what we saw in the other uh, presentations. We didn't see them turned up like that. They were sort of, they were basically landed or crashed and then they just crews just started cutting them up. All right, so trundling inside the uh, wrecked transport, B finds Cassian fast asleep on a bench. Calling it to Cassian, B says that uh, he brought what Cassian asked for. And as the camera pulls in on Cassian's face, B repeatedly calls out, 
Cassian, Cassian, before switching to Gasa, Gasa. We get our first, uh, I don't know, flashback. I called it a dream sequence, but I guess technically it's a fl- it's flashback dreams. For all, both. For all I guess it's purpose. both. We cut to a sequence where Cassian's younger sister, this uh, character's name, by the way, is Carrie, calls out to him. Carrie is a bright, uh, bright-eyed young girl. I've uh, put her somewhere between, what, ages maybe seven or eight. Cassa appears to be just a few years older, maybe 12 or 13. He wakes from his sleep, rolling over to see Carrie, pointing off in the distance as she tells him that uh, something is happening. There's something of note here in this sequence is that all of the kids uh, in these sequences speak the native Canary language. And more importantly, it's not subtitled. Mm-hmm. Um, we've gotten that quite a bit. Uh, like when everybody's speaking Hatiz, it's usually like subtitled what it is. But... If you turn the subtitles on in the episode, as we do as part of our research process, all it says, speaking Canary. <laughs> so, you know that. Um, this is a very cool choice. I was talking about the colonialism thing. Mm-hmm. This is kind of one more, or maybe the first aspect that we sort of are forced to look at it. Kids speak in their native language, especially when you fast forward, we've, we've seen Cassian sort of in the, the bigger star Wars context. I, my first thought was, Oh my God, they've made him change his name from Casa to Cassian. It's like bringing those kids over, uh, um, like when they were adopting kids here and they anglicized their names. Oh, and by the way, speak English. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Conform. Yeah, totally. All right. Um, as Casa and Carrie walk towards a riverbank, we can see a ramshackle encampment filled with nothing but other kids. Um, it's a real Lord of the flies looking kind of setup where the camp and their clothes look like they've been cobbled together from scraps the oldest kids look like they might be, I wouldn't say any more than 18. And they all excitedly begin pointing at the sky as the sound of a rumbling engine grows louder. While turning their heads skyward, we see a freighter drifting into view with a trail of black smoke behind it. If you look really, really close, there's like this greenish, yellowish gas kind of pouring out of it. An explosion in the aft section startles the kids and they watch as the ship floats past on a downward crash course. Oh, did I miss a slide? I think I did. That's unfortunate. Okay, so Carrie, uh, the character Carrie is played by uh, actress uh, Belle Swark, who's making her debut right here in Andor. And uh, Casa is a young fellow by the name of Antonio Vina. Uh, he has been acting since uh, 2018, but has really only appeared in a bunch of like Spanish language shows. Nothing. Uh... Yeah. Well, that's probably why I didn't put a slide in. because <laughs> nothing we knew. Possible. All right. As the ship passes overhead, one of the older girls uh, waves and uh, she's waving and starts calling out to it, but she's quickly admonished by another girl and uh, she stops with a look of defeat. Carrie then hugs her brother as they and the rest of the kids watch the freighter disappear over a mountain, hearing the impact somewhere on the other side. And the big question here is, uh, where are all the adults? Go on. Removed for work labor force, maybe? Well, another, you know, take the adults that can work and put them, because we're 
going to see something shortly here, what the Empire has done to this planet. I don't want to get too uh, too far ahead, but like I said, the clothing, it's cobbled together from scraps of other things. And if you look at a lot of the state of their dress, it's baggy and it's tied on. It's, you know, kind of the very, they can do very kind of castaway kind of thing. Yeah. Not to say that they are castaways. I'm still undecided if they're, you know, I don't they're, think they're castaways. I don't think so either. We are going to find out a little bit more about them later on. And we are going to ask, that, we are going to revisit that question though. Mm-hmm. All right. Back to the transport on Ferrix. Cassian nurses his injured hand, uh, which has been bloodied from the, uh, the fight the night before. Seems convenient that, uh, oh, by the way, I just, I, I made a point of this because how convenient is it that two planets in the same system have the exact same day and night schedule, uh, cycle? Maybe. <laughs> so they are, they are orbiting the same star at exactly the same, like they would literally have to be on top of each other. Mm-hmm. It's kind of weird. It's fine. It's fine. It's, you know, suspension of disbelief. But again, you know, just, just to be cynical for a second. Well, they're going to mm-hmm. call that in pretty hard and, uh episode two i think the day night thing yeah well no just the distance between ferrix and morlana uh star wars has has messed with uh, space travel uh especially in the sequel era where suddenly you know you're there yeah it's minutes seconds yeah. we need to go somewhere we just get there we uh, fly by map mm-hmm. <laughs> all right b asks cassian where he was last night but cassian dismisses him uh, saying that it's not important. The droid opens a storage compartment on his torso and Cassian removes what looks like a, a bandage sealed in plastic. B presses Cassian to tell him where he was, but uh, Cassian deflects the droid by asking uh, who came by the house while he was gone. Cassian then gets up from the bench that he was uh, sleeping on and he goes to an overhead bin in the forward section of the ship and he begins wrapping his injured hand while B tells him that well, Jesse and Femi brought dinner along with some medication for Marva. He then adds that uh, Jesse later came back by themselves. Now, we don't actually meet these characters, Jesse and Femi, but we do meet Marva later on in the episode. And without giving too much away, we'll say that Marva is basically his adoptive mom. Yeah. So here's another little uh, onion layer that we're peeling back. Jesse and Femi has got to be too, too... Uh, presumably two lady friends of his mm-hmm. especially for jesse to come back later alone <laughs> mind you the whole i mean they really dive in on it in episode three but the whole community aspect is really tight-knit oh right in uh in Ferrix, in yeah. town yeah yeah i get the feeling that that city is a lot i mean there's only so much you can do with a practical set you can only build it so big but i feel like the way that they've that they've depicted it that it's much larger than what we can actually see Mm -hmm. as most places in star wars are but like yeah it feels like it's a really densely populated place yeah all right cassian asks him if anyone else was looking for him oh i think i've gotten too far ahead yeah if anyone was looking for him and b says that someone by the name of brasso was looking for him when cassian asks b what he told brasso the droid tells him that uh, well it was marva that spoke to him and when Cassian asked what she said, B pauses saying he's experiencing a data lag before blurting out that Marva said he was ruining his health and reputation with friends of low character, adding that sooner or later, Cassian was going to get himself into trouble that he couldn't talk his way out of. Uh, ding, ding on the nose. Mm-hmm. 
uh, I kind of got the impression that uh, data lag was B's way of trying to sort of preserve his feelings like, oh, I don't want to say what she said. Yeah. Because it's not really nice. <laughs> um, and that's the first clue that that we get that maybe these two characters are, you know, kind of tighter than what we actually we don't get to see them interact a whole lot no. uh, in this episode. But I get the feeling that, you know, over the course of his lifetime, they've kind of endeared themselves yeah. to each other. Yeah, yeah. Because B has been around, like, as we will find out, for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. When the droid tries to continue, Cassian uh, uh, snaps at him, saying that he's heard enough. Uh, with his hand now wrapped, he sits back down on the bench and with a much softer tone, asks the droid to lie for him. The droid happily acknowledges that he can, uh, and Cassian tells him not to tell anyone that he saw him or knows where he is. Well, sardonically, B replies, that's two lies. <laughs> Cassian says, well, let's have both. And B replies that, uh, yeah, but he'll need to recharge at home. Cassian says, well, take your time as he packs away his uh, sleeping gear under the bench. And B is like, I, I can't come with you. And Cassian's like, well, not now. I don't have time. Dejected. And I do mean dejected. This is where we get that like, oh, moment where like he kind of drops his head. Yeah. Dejected. The droid drops his head in disappointment. Maybe even sorrow. Cassian kneeling down in front of B tells him, I'm sorry, but he's late. And as the two face each other, Cassian notices a piece of uh, scrap metal stuck in B's uh, torso. It's like a piece of uh, plumbing tape. Mm-hmm. Got the holes in it and everything. Tells him to stay, uh, stay still as he pulls it out uh, like a dog's owner would pull a thorn from their paw. He places a, a hand lightly on the droid's body and tells him, take his time before grabbing his coat and rushing off. Well, back in town, Cassian makes his way down the main street towards uh, a central bell tower. The street is bustling and Cassian looks nervous as he looks over his shoulder, you know, kind of doing the anybody following me Mm -hmm. arriving at what looks like a staging area for the scrap workers. We see a uh, wall and this wall is covered in like dozens of pairs of like really heavy gloves. It went beyond the rock or the rock wall, the gloved wall. We see a pair of circular doors kind of spiral open and a bunch of workers kind of float in as if they're getting ready to go to work. They each claim, uh, claim a pair of gloves and some of them board hover platforms, uh, presumably to take them out to the, uh, the scrapyard that we were just in. Now on that wall, there is one block that is missing its gloves. Yeah. Um, is that a case of that employee has, is no longer with us? Uh, is it a case that maybe Cassian was that employee fired possibly? Maybe there's just, there's room to hire somebody. Maybe it is because at the end of the sequence, you know, Brasso does tell him, you know, you know, put your boots on. Yeah. Go to work. Cause he implies that he has been working there at some point. I don't know if it's, if it's, he's is working or it's Brasso's way, you know, the get a job straighten up. Dude. You know what I mean? Like maybe it's his way of saying, just sort your poop out. Maybe. <laughs> All right. Cassian spots his, uh, his friend Brasso and gestures to him. Brasso stops to talk to him, telling him that uh, he had come by to look for him the other night. Cassian says, I know. And he immediately asks Brasso, uh, what did he do after he left? And uh, Brasso says, well, he was tired. So I went home, got cleaned up and fell asleep. But Cassian 
says no launching into an alibi he says you came by for me and when i wasn't there you started home you found me at the hotel bridge we decided that we were thirsty and you wanted to go to cavo's presumably that's a bar but i said that it was no good because there's too many people there that i owe money brasso looking down at his friend furrows his eyebrow and retorts you serious and cassian answers with a very earnest yeah uh, Brasso, sensing that something is up, asks Cassian, who's going to be asking? But instead of answering the question, Cassian continues crafting his story, saying that uh, Cavos was out, but you remembered that you had a half a bottle of Nog stashed at home, so we went there and drank ourselves to sleep. Brasso looks bewildered for a moment, and you can tell that he's not really sure if he's actually going to go along with it. Another onion layer. Mm-hmm. Cassian, staring up at the bigger man, implores him, please, I really need this. It seems like uh, this is not the first time that Cassian has put Brasso in a position, and now it's Brasso's turn. Mm-hmm. He says, you insulted my choice of beverage, and as the host and provider, I was offended. You failed to gauge the irritation, the depth of my irritation. You rose to make your point more vocally, and I was helping you back into your chair when you fell. You were gone when I woke up. You've come here now to apologize. And uh, Cassian chuckles as Brasso finishes with, and I accept your apology. (laughs) Well, with uh, the alibi now cemented, Brasso tells Cassian that whatever this is, when it's over, pull your boots on and get to work. You look like a wreck. And then he hops on a a loaded hover platform headed for the scrapyard. And uh, as the platform pulls away, Cassian says, I knew I could count on you, but Brasso shoots back. I'm not lending you any money. <laughs> adding, tell your mother she can afford to put the heat on. It was freezing there last night. This whole uh, sense that Cassian, uh, you know, has this small cadre of friends, associates, associates, friends. I guess I think that he's genuinely a friend. I think so, but I think you know, there's a tendency to to sort of hold him at arm's length, like. How many times are you going to ask for a favor? How many times are you going to borrow? What are you dragging me into now? Right. And I mean, there's a, like, I get the sense that Brasso is like, oh, you know, you've asked me to do weird things before. Cause that hesitation, it's like, oh, like, I'm not sure if he's actually going to go along with this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like a true friend, not only does he go along with it, he finishes, the yeah, story. finishes the story. All right, this uh, character, Brasso, is played by uh, actor Joplin Sibitane. And uh, if you're a fan of uh, the long-running British series EastEnders, you might recognize him as Jack. Uh, he also played in uh, the sci-fi original Night Flyers as uh, Lomi's father. He's also the narrator in a British uh, documentary series called Monster Ships. Hmm. I'm not really familiar with his work, but uh, I thought he was pretty good in this. We cut to an exterior shot of uh, the corporate sector security headquarters, sorry, the corporate security headquarters of uh, Morlana One. Like the leisure district that we saw at the beginning of uh, the episode, this cluster of buildings uh, is right on the edge of a large body of water. So given that um, reasonable assumption that Morlana One is maybe a water planet? A lot of water at least. I get sort of trappings of uh, Topoka City. I mean, the, the buildings are obviously yeah. different, but like the structures are maybe like floating on the water. Mm. 
very pod like yeah like almost like Modular oh drop building here yeah. <sighs> done inside the headquarters chief inspector hein played by uh, rupert van zittart reads the report detailing the murder of kravis and verlo standing rigidly in the position of at ease is uh, deputy inspector cyril karn played by uh, kyle solar Karn, knowing the chief was leaving the planet today, wanted him to have all of the relevant information before he left. But these two men could not be more contrasting. Um, this whole interaction between the two of them, it's really, really telling. Like that whole, uh, uh, did you modify your uniform thing? Do you remember that that line? vaguely he's he asked him uh, the chief inspector asked him did you modify your uniform like did you do that as somebody who's been in the military there's this there's this thing and people who have been been in in service know what i mean when i say the lcf the look cool factor his uniform is is more tailored it's you know more cut to his his form which in some ways is a you know out of a sense of pride but Given what we learn about this character as the episode goes on, remember when uh, uh, the the hostess said they just like to play at being cops? Mm -hmm. To me, this is the guy who, you know, basically has wanted to be a cop his entire life, but no agency would hire him. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, how he got here. I don't know how he got here, to be honest. But like at the other end of that spectrum, you have chief hein and to me like i mean he's been me. around the block once or twice younger man older man yeah guy who's like completely driven versus guy who just ah, i don't fucking care anymore mm. i see car uh, not Karn. sorry i see hein the chief inspector as maybe somebody who's like maybe he was in the republic military or one of the other forces out yeah. there somewhere and now he's basically because this is a private contracting company the money is always better in the private sector than yeah. it is in the public sector. So surely it pays more, but he's, you know, probably an accomplished, you know, officer of the law. Yeah. But I picture him as being the type of guy who's like, I'm three months away from retirement. Yeah. I'm don't, not rocking the boat. Don't mess it up. <laughs> yeah. They could not be more different. Yeah. In some sense, you know, they're almost like the, where the similarity is, is like, they're just like, if you picture them as the same person, but at different ends of the career spectrum, mm. one guy's just kind of, you know, young and eager, just getting started. And the other, nope, I'm on my way out. All right. So, um, well, the chief inspector casually reads the account of events as they are written, but he's really in no way motivated to chase any leads. Um, while Karn basically finds it like unconscionable not to. Yeah. Chief Hine recognizes Kravis uh, as someone that he used to know, noting that uh, Kravis used to be a squad commander uh, on Morlana 4. Uh, but Karn points out that, well, he's fallen considerably since then as he was working as a sentry corporal at the time of death. Um, by the way, that, that uh, remark 4, that tells us that there's at least five planets in the uh, Morlana system because 1 through 4 and Ferrix. Mm -hmm. all in the same system so at least five planets in the uh Morlana system all right hein uh isn't surprised in the least that uh at kravis's fall going so far as to say that uh oh he's lucky he wasn't killed years ago 
going so far as to call him one of the most unpleasant people that he'd ever met. Well, with no witnesses and a paper-thin description of the subject, the chief calls it a tough case and says it comes at a bad time. Karn is certain that with several days and the required resources that he can close the case. But the chief tells him to stop. Not just to stop talking, but to stop the investigation. Standing up from behind his desk, he uh, toggles a switch that closes the door and uh, in no uncertain terms explains uh, explains it away as a regrettable misadventure. Mm. The chief goes on to instruct Karn to concoct a suitable accident to explain the death of the two guards, further instructing him to make sure that whatever it is, that it happened outside of what he describes as the leisure zone, the blue light district. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Karn protests saying, but they were murdered. And Hines nonchalantly says, no, they were killed in a fight. Which is true. It is true. He then lays it out for the deputy inspector. The men were killed in a brothel, which they're not supposed to have. Um, And it was the expensive one, which they should not have been able to afford. And they were drinking Revnog, which they're not supposed to allow. And all while on duty, which is grounds for dismissal. The chief then concludes by saying that they just chose the wrong person to ignore, uh, to annoy. He goes on to further instruct Karn to uh, make it look like they died trying to help someone. Uh, Don't make it look too heroic. And then he packs his briefcase. Turning his gaze back up uh, to Karn, he notes that the the deputy inspector looks stricken. And he says, "Are are you absorbing my meaning? And Karn kind of purses his lips together and with a very furrowed brow lets out, uh, I'm trying to, sir. Well, Chief Inspector Hine then steps out from behind the desk to gather his coat and headdress, explaining that uh, the reason that he called it bad timing is because today he's leaving for what he describes as an Imperial Command Review, a review in which he's expected to give a report, which will include the current crime rate. He says uh, that if Karn would ever, should ever find himself uh, in the position of having to give the same report, that the goal is to do so with brevity because the less time that the empire spends thinking about Priox Morlana, the more that benefits their superiors within the company and by extension, everyone else who's employed with the inspection team. He then makes a point to add, which at the moment includes you and to threaten him with his own job. Yeah. Don't screw this up (laughs) or you're out. Chief Hine ends the one-way conversation telling Karn not to put his feet on the desk while he's gone and let's have an accident report ready for when I get back. And judging by the look on Karn's face, that is the last thing that he's going to do. Yep. Um, this whole interaction speaks to me, uh, especially again, you know, given what we find out about, uh, Karn as we go on, you know, the expression, uh, give them enough rope and let them hang themselves. Yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, I guess I could say it this way. I sense a great disturbance in the force with this one. <laughs> True. All right. So our two, yeah. Go. You, you did point out there that there's no further reference to, was it Revnog? Revnog. Could that be the same Nog? I'm sure Cassian it is. Oh, I, I am certain it is. Revnog. Uh, again, I, did I look that? Yeah. No reference to Nog, no reference to Revnog. Presumably it's just the fancy way of saying, you know, booze. Rev Nog. I bet you it's creamy. 
Maybe. Maybe it's like the stuff I make at Christmas time. With blue milk. My moose milk. <laughs> moose milk for everybody who knows. <laughs> blue milk and vodka. Blue milk. Hey, uh, we don't get blue milk, but we do get blue something else. I'm going to yeah. talk about that later on. <clears throat> this weekend uh, sequence, we're introduced to uh, two characters, Chief Inspector Hine. This is uh, Rupert Vansittart. Um, you may remember him from Braveheart, where he played Lord Bottoms. Hmm. He also appeared in uh, Cutthroat Island. You remember Cutthroat Island, With, the, uh, Gina, the Davis. Gina Davis pirate movie? Played Captain Perkins. And uh, more recently, he was Jan Royce in Game of Thrones. Not Jan Rock. No, Jan Royce. Deputy Inspector Karn, uh, as I said before, played by Kyle Seller. He played uh, uh, Korsunsky in uh, Anna Karenina. Uh, as well as uh, Scotty McNeil in You, Me, and the Apocalypse. And uh, for any younger uh, viewers or listeners out there, he is the voice of Dante in the uh, animated series 101 Dalmatian Street. Hmm. I don't know who that is. Is that a dog? I would assume so. I don't know. Maybe yeah, it's a 101 dog. Dalmatians to choose from. Okay. Isn't it 102? Yeah, I think they're up to I think it. Is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, back on uh, Ferrex, Cassian walks into a store with a round facade. Um, the <laughs> I tried to translate it, and uh, I don't know. It kind of tapers, uh, trails in and out, and it's not really a clear shot. It is Orabesh. The first word, uh, I can't make out all the letters. It ends in A-R-D, and then the second word is on. The third word is conversion, and then it's O-D, something, something, something. Hmm. It's hard to make out inside the store. There's a man behind the counter uh, who's serving a customer. Uh, the customer is uh, not human though. Uh, and so the storekeeper, uh, Tim, Tim Carlo addresses the customer through an interpreter droid. Ignoring Tim, uh, Cassian walks past the counter on his way out to the backyard. Tim looks up from the counter, seeing Cassian and says, she's out in the yard. In a workshop behind the store, a woman lays on the floor. And she's uh, cutting a component from an engine that's hanging above her on a hoist. The woman is Bix Colleen, and this, uh, I guess, is her shop. To get her attention, Cassian raises the hoist, and uh, without even looking at him, Bix says, I'm busy. Sheepishly, Cassian says, I'll be quick. And uh, she gets up, lifts her welding helmet, now visibly annoyed. She's like, what? Okay. Um, I get like romantic vibes here like that this that they may have been paramours at one time yeah because there's, there's a there's lot a of history yeah there's a there's a tension in the air like right from the get-go and it and it kind of goes back and forth between the two of them that uh they're still kind of friendly but there's this unwritten sort of like i'm still mad at you yeah without um uh, sorry cassian goes on to uh oh sorry yeah cassian goes on to ask bix about a secret friend that buys ship components from her specifically he asks how fast she can reach him without answering bix asks cassian what happened to your face he says that uh, he fell and bix laughs at him when she says on what a jealous husband <laughs> another onion layer yep Cassian presses Bix, saying that he has something to sell, and he asks her how soon can he get here. But uh, Bix casually says that uh, she wasn't planning on contacting him until the end of the month. With a hint of desperation now creeping into Cassian's voice, he says, no, this would have to be now. And that catches Bix's attention. 
as she finally looks at him saying, you know, it doesn't work that way. Not for one item. She says that she always bundles items together to make it worth it for both of them. Cassian prods are a little bit more saying, come on, not phased and not willing to budge. She tells Cassian that a TAC Corvette is coming in later in the week to be scrapped. And she's been told that there will be a rack of Imperial targeting units on it that someone will have forgotten to strip from it. She says that uh, with that, plus the item that Cassian has and a few naval comm scans that they'll have enough. Well, with his desperation growing, Cassian frets, I can't wait that long. Incredulously, incredulously, Bix says, why? She pauses for a second before shooting Cassian a sideways look saying, what have you done? Deflecting the, yeah, go ahead. She knows him. Oh yeah. So now for the, for the second time now, uh, this is the second friend in a row that's like, Hmm. what are you about to drag me what yeah exactly (laughs) deflecting the the question cassian responds that her friend will want what he has adding you said that he wanted to meet me but bix uh, just kind of stares at him and she says well so what is it when he doesn't answer she asks him again what is it and knowing that he's not going to get anywhere without giving her something cassian finally relents and tells her that what he has is an untraceable NS9 Starpath unit. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details of that because that treads on another episode, but uh, basically the NS9, uh, we can think of it as a valuable piece of Starship navigation equipment that has some special properties that we're going to talk about uh, in a future episode. Mm -hmm. He says that the unit's vector crystals and the Imperial seal are still intact. Mint condition. Bix's eyes fit as she asks him, how long have you had that? Cassian just shakes his head and says he needs to move it. Now angry, Bix accuses him of holding out on her by hiding the NS9 unit. He tries to defuse the anger by saying that he wasn't hiding it. He was just saving it, but she won't have any of it. And that further, uh, she further accuses him of taking the unit from one of the ships that she won the salvage rights on. And uh, that's a kind of a neat little detail because that really paints a, a much clearer picture um, between what is the, the corporate zone versus the free trade zone. Like I get the impression that like corporate zone, like on Marlana one, only the company does business where as we find out later, they talk about uh, uh, Ferrix being in their jurisdiction, even though they don't have a presence there. Yeah. Hence the little companies like, uh, like Tim and Bix can operate in the free trade. He retorts, uh, guess again, but Bix is still angry with him. Not your best move. She says, as she walks over to a bin, tossing, uh, the engine component uh, that she just removed while frustrated Cassian says, so what you want to call your guy or not? Turning to face him, Bix leans against the engine that she was working on, and she says, uh, do you know how much that's worth? He says, yeah, it's enough to get away from here, to get out of Ferrix, someplace where he can lay low until things cool off, adding that uh, he needs to relocate for a while. But uh, Bix is still very angry that Cassian has somehow reneged on their business arrangement. But Cassian blurts out that she's been skimming off the top, so don't get emotional. Well, switching to a different angle, uh, Bix tells Cassian that uh, he's going to need an alternate plan, but Cassian straight up says no before she can even get it out of her mouth. Cutting her off, he says, I'm not going to sell it to you. 
Well, uh, it's Bix's turn to sort of plea now when she says, come on. But Cassian retorts, I didn't hang on to this to have a partner, adding that uh, I need every credit I can get my hands on. Well, just then Tim comes out from the store and he says, uh, hey, are we bidding on the Wabani run tomorrow? So uh, Wabani, by the way, do you remember that? No. Well, we've been to Wabani before. If you don't remember, Wabani is the name of the uh, planet with the Imperial Detention Center and labor camp that Jyn Erso was remanded to in oh, okay. uh, Rogue One. That's the planet where they bust her uh, out of, out of uh, the back of that um, the big tank thing. Yeah. All right. When Bix answers, what? Tim repeats himself saying, there's a run coming from Wabani tomorrow, adding that uh, somebody named Jeef wants to know if they're in on it. Bix answers uh, Tim with a smile saying, uh, he'll know when I'm ready. Cassian catches her smile and he looks over his shoulder. Tim meeting his glance. The two hold the look just long enough for it to be awkward, maybe a little bit tense. While turning back to Bix, Cassian uh, suggests that she and Tim's relationship has now turned into something more than just work. And Cassian makes Bix promise him that Tim does not find out about any of this. Presumably referring to their business arrangement, because I kind of get the feeling that uh, Tim already knows, like, just the way that Tim interacts with Cassian suggests that he may be just a little bit jealous. Mm-hmm. And that'll come up later too. Oh, big time. Bix says that Tim would do anything for her, but Cassian shoots back. No, no, that wasn't my question. Pulling another component off the engine, she grunts back at Cassian. No, he knows nothing about any of it. Before she takes the part to a corner of the workshop. Cassian follows her to the corner and he takes her by the arm. Leaning in closely, he speaks very softly, reminding her that she told him her friend wanted to meet him, adding that he really needs this. There's an intimacy in this moment where you really sort of it solidifies the idea that, yeah, these two were close at one time. And maybe on some level, they still are. Mm-hmm. It's the second time that he said that he wants to meet me. And I get the impression that maybe this has been going on. This whole like uh, uh, fencing ship parts has been going on for a while. Yeah. I kind of get the feeling that Bix told her friend about Cassian when they were still romantically involved. Mm -hmm. And now that they're broken up, she's been sort of using that as like, I'm still angry at you. Therefore I'm not going to introduce him to you Yeah, because why else would he, you know, why would he repeat it? You said he wanted to meet me. Yeah. Okay. You're pretty eager, man. Like, but why hasn't she done it at this point? Yeah. Well, yeah, I think she's still a little bit, a little bit upset with him. All right. And I think it's the tenderness of the moment that changes her mind because she then looks at Cassian and says that, yeah, she'll let him know. Well, Cassian looks at her kind of longingly, um, maybe because he's lost her or maybe because he knows that he's got to get out of Ferrix and it's not going to see her again. But Bix pats him on the chest and she tells him softly, well, go and fix your face. Well, we don't actually see this character Jeef that uh, Tim is talking about. So uh, it's unclear if they are the same person or not, but there is a reference in Star Wars to a character named Jeef. And that comes from the 2019 comic Age of Rebellion special number one. It's a one shot uh, with a bunch of short stories in it uh, is a one story. It's called Stolen Valor. 
which centers around a big Stark letter and Jack Porkins taking a vacation on the planet earth. Hmm. It's a very kid centric, uh, uh, story. You can sort of tell by the way it's, it's drawn and by the dialogue, but they encounter what they believe to be is an, uh, an Imperial officer. Well, it actually turns out that uh, this Imperial officer is actually a single mom spice miner um, who's impersonating an officer to take advantage of the uh, VIP treatment and the perks at the resort where they are. Yeah, she says, uh, what does she say here? She says, um, or, sorry, Big says, don't move, you Imperial scum. We've got dangerous weapons under these towels and we'll blast you if you don't come with us. Well, she throws up her hand saying, please, please, no, I swear I'm not really an Imperial officer. I was just pretending to be one for the VIP treatment and the free perks. I'm just a single mother of six who needed a vacation from her job in a spice mine. And then it's Biggs who says, well, if you have six kids, what are their names? And she blurts out, Brit, Blip, Flip, Jeef, Gurf, Bilf, and Arnold. Arnold is adopted. <laughs> Listen, I just need a break and to be pampered for once. I have, haven't you ever felt so overwhelmed that you needed to get away and forget about life for a while? Um, so it's age appropriate, uh, or sorry, I should say era appropriate that maybe this Jeef that we don't see could, could be, be the same one. Could be the same Jeef from this uh, one shot story. Anyway, it's not important, but it is kind of funny. So, um, Tim, Tim is, uh, played by actor, uh, James McArdle, um, uh, and James McArdle has already appeared in star Wars. He was in uh, the force awakens where he played live or sorry, Niv Lek. Hmm. He's also appeared in, uh, the mayor of East, uh, East town, uh, as Deacon Mark Burton and, uh, also, uh, life after life where he played a character by the name of, uh, Hugh. Bix Colleen, she's played by uh, Adria Ariona, uh, who played uh, Danny Silva back on uh, Person of Interest. She also played uh, Jules Reyes in uh, the sequel film Pacific Rim Uprising, one of the, the Jaeger pilots. Hmm. More uh, Most recently, though, Martine Bancroft in Morbius. Still haven't seen that one. Um, eh, <laughs> just eh. See it as a, as a Marvel fan? See it okay um don't don't put a whole lot of faith into it but uh yeah see it hmm. as cassian leaves uh bick's workshop tim catches him at the back entrance of the yard and tim wastes no time in letting cassian know that bick seems upset and cassian answers sarcastically oh it's good to see you tim look at uh locking gazes uh tim continues it seems like that happens every time you come around Cassian scoffs as he goes around Tim saying, I wouldn't worry. She's tougher than both of us. But Tim says he's getting tired of hearing that. Well, Cassian uh, walks away smiling and says, then you better find yourself a less complicated woman. And uh, as he rounds the corner, he looks back over his shoulder and offers a sarcastic, good luck with that. <laughs> like if this is not two dudes yep. flapping their whatever's at each other, then I don't know what is. <laughs> We do see uh, Cassian leaving the uh, the workshop, though, and the uh, the Orabesh translated over top of the door is, in fact, Colleen. That's Bix's last name. Yeah. So it's uh, definitely her workshop. So are they are they partners? Is she partners with Tim in this business? Is she an employee? I think she would at least be partner. 
they don't really say expressly if she is or isn't. No. Um, but hey, she's got her name on a building, so it's got to mean something. Yeah, and she comes and goes as she pleases. Uh, yeah, which she will do later on in the episode. At this point in the episode, we cut back to Canari, uh, where some of the kids are still watching the plume of smoke uh, from the crashed ship uh, as it billows over a mountaintop. Uh, and a large group of older kids are now gathered around a campfire um, while one of the older boys uh, stands watch nearby. Casa approaches the gathering with Carrie in tow, and uh, he shoves her off to uh, be with some of the younger kids so that he can join the circle. Another girl approaches from the river. She's carrying several canteens uh, of water, and she begins to hand them out. One of the kids in the circle adds uh, some water to a small metal bowl and begins stirring something within it. The bowl is then passed around the group along with a few other bowls, and uh, beginning with what is described as the 16-year-old alpha female. So I I said no more than 18. She is uh, identified as being 16, and yeah, they describe her in the, the descriptive audio as the alpha female. Uh, they begin to adorn themselves in what I would describe as uh, war paint uh, made from wet ashes from the fire uh, mixed up in the bowls. Casa reaches for the bowl, but his hand is slapped away by another older boy. Uh, but the alpha female admonishes him and Casa uh, is allowed to continue. Well, with a visible admiration for the older girl, he uh, emulates her by painting the very same uh, single stripe down his chin and neck. Meanwhile, on Morlana One, Deputy Inspector Karn pauses outside of a control room. Uh, a pair of uniformed officers walking past startle him, and uh, he takes a minute to sort of gather himself before he enters the room. Again, you know, another case of decisions have been made. <laughs> uh, remember that rope that we gave Karn? Mm-hmm. It's getting shorter. <laughs> But him getting startled, that's just like a little bit of a crack in the facade. Oh, absolutely. He presents himself, you know, a very stiff officer. But behind that, you know, there's the, uh, you know, using the analogy again of of having been in the service, there's the, uh, you know, the the parade square warrior versus the the guy in the field who actually does the job. Yeah. And uh, this guy looks good on paper. I'm sure he was probably like, you know, one of those top graduate types He's probably really book smart. Yeah. And uh, that actually, you know, I think it's in episode uh, three, episode three, when they actually go to Ferrex. Two. Two. Yeah. You really get a sense of that between the the interaction between him and the sergeant. Yeah. Sergeant Moss. Yeah. 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 There's a, you really see the contrast there. All right. The room is dark inside and it resembles uh, what I would describe as like a sonar room of a modern day war, uh, warship. Air traffic control. Well, in this case, they're actually described as the Astro Traffic Control Officer. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Three of them seated inside, each one monitoring what looks like a radar screen. Um, So standing over one of the control officers, uh, Karn instructs the man to sift through uh, some traffic data from the previous night. Spotting a small anomaly on the screen, Karn says, what's that? The traffic control officer filters out a bunch of the other data, uh, but is unable to identify the ship. The best that he can come up with is that it might be something that he calls an Orlean star cab or maybe a day van, but uh, whatever it is, it's, uh, it's very slow. By the way, the Orabesh uh, on the screen there, that was a tough one to, cause it's backwards. 
because <laughs> of the camera angle says uh, angle of attack i'm wondering if maybe this radar screen was used in a previous show or will be used again for something else maybe maybe can't imagine that there's a lot of attacking ships uh in regular air traffic yeah not a lot incoming yeah yeah angle of attack could also be a reference to uh, uh like a, a dive angle or a, a climbing angle just a a vector as it were if they see something on this angle alert sure sure uh karn is a nonplus that a ship with no identification just wandered into their space without anybody noticing and the traffic control officer tries to downplay it telling karn uh, quite matter-of-factly that well you know the nights get busy um and this is the first example we're going to get more examples of this later on with uh, three other officers but like talk about borderline insubordination like this guy had like there's no respect for this character but in the same vein like the chief he's like you know i know this guy he's a bit of a dick yeah apparently the reputation will carry through the organization oh yeah and chances are he's not very respected i don't even though he's yeah. like the deputy inspector yeah. he's not well liked not at all no clearly he's done stuff to get where he's got irritate that the contrast well you've worked in a large organization management versus the the bullpen right yeah right management often does not know what's going on in the rank and file and that's kind of the the impression i get with him yeah well karn he's not dissuaded he tells the control officer that uh he's not sure what's worse the fact that their borders are unprotected or the man's complacency about it he then orders him to find the unidentified ship when it left marlana one and where it went well, the astro traffic control officer uh, uh officer puts up a mild protest saying to karn that that's going to require filtering the entire night's traffic records and karn says the man uh, tells the man well if that's too much you let me know adding that uh, he's sure somebody else would like that chair again with that abuse of power absolutely but again uh, with the insubordination too right mm -hmm. well the Orlean Star Cab, um, that actually goes back to uh, a, a Legends reference back in uh, 1993, the uh, Star Wars role-playing game sourcebook, Galaxy Guide 8. It's uh, Scouts. <laughs> it's not actually a cab. It's actually um, a scout ship from a time before modern hyperdrives. Hmm. Very bug-like. It does. Well, it looks, yeah, it looks like a grub or uh, some yeah. kind of insect-looking thing. Like something out of Starship Troopers. Yeah, very much like that. Um, these ships uh, crewed by uh, three droids and and one biological. Um, the droids kind of handle the day-to-day -day mundane stuff, which leaves the pilot to sort of do other things. But this ship is like, it's said to be like ancient. Hmm. Like when they say before modern hyperdrives. Um, so like the Millennium Falcon has what's called a class uh, 0.5 hyperdrive. So it's really, really fast. Um, most military-grade ships have a, a times one hyperdrive. This one has a times, uh, what is it? I've got it here somewhere, times 10? Hmm. Times 10 or times 15, making it like exceptionally slow. Anyway. Being um, older too, it would be like just like the Razor Crest where it was pre- uh, this would be so older. There's no tracker or whatever. This would be older than the Razor Crest by like probably hundreds of years. Yeah. But because it's a Legends reference, well, I guess it's technically there is a canon reference for it as well. But um, there is now. Yeah, yeah. 
as for <laughs> as for uh Dayvan, there isn't necessarily a star wars specific reference but when you when you look up the term Dayvan, it's very british hmm. a very british term Dayvan uh, basically could be thought of as a stripped down camper that's not really equipped for long trips just day trips yeah so yeah exactly day van day van hmm. so presumably something along those lines um it could just be like a, a pleasure craft of some kind all right back on ferrix uh, as cassian makes his way through the streets he catches the attention of a street vendor well the man confronts cassian saying that i want my deposit back and uh, when cassian tries to fast talk his way past the man uh, telling him that his money is already in play, we realize that uh, Nurchi, Nurchi, the street vendor, has already been ca- conned by Cassian. So one more example of somebody he knows that he's uh, indebted to somehow. This guy has a distinctly less friendly vibe, though. Big time. Well, you know, they they kind of, their interaction suggests that Cassian's pitched like, hey, I need you, I need an investor. Yeah, give me some money, invest it, and I'll get you a return. Because he makes something about the money's already in play. We're just waiting to see if the, whenever it is, the thing shows up. Yeah. Right, right. Um, And maybe that could be another person like investing in, say, a bid for oh, maybe. whatever salvage yeah, yeah, is maybe. next to come. Yeah, probably probably it's something to do with the ship parts. I mean, that's sort of the a, a big sort of thing with the this driving planet. factor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it seems like Nurchi has been anticipating uh, this very moment because uh, he's not alone. Uh, a, a shadow looms over Cassian from behind, and uh, when Cassian turns, he sees the hulking amphibian form of Vetch. Now, Vetch is a male uh, Eurodel. Uh, Eurodells actually made their first appearance back in uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens. Insulted by the show of force, Cassian retorts, seriously? But Nurchi is not backing down. He says, I'm not going to be like the others who let you float until they forget that you owe them money. <laughs> well, Cassian turns to Vetch and he says, uh, you let him talk you into this? Nurchi uh, tries to keep Cassian focused on him, but Cassian demands uh, an answer from Vetch continuing cassian says since when do you take orders from nurchi and uh, nurchi is like don't answer that but uh, vetch who is clearly um a little bit simpler and probably sounds like a lot more kind-hearted mm-hmm. um and also maybe just a little bit down on his luck uh he says he said all i needed to do was stand here <laughs> and cassian says well good you keep at it now um nurchi's threat is now it's kind of empty now. Yeah. Well, Cassian takes the upper hand and he says, I'm going to do us both a favor and just not mention that this ever happened. And, uh, he takes off kind of leaving the two of them to sort of stare at each other. Like, and Nurchi or sorry, Vetch is like, what? Yeah. Well, what <laughs> else was he leave. supposed to do? He's just standing there. The guy's like, he needs a job. He's clearly out of work, but I mean, just his whole demeanor and the way that he interacts here, like you're like, oh, you almost feel bad for him. A little bit. Yeah, I do. Anyway, well, uh, our man Nurchi is uh, an actor by the name of uh, Raymond Anum. And uh, man, there's not a whole lot on this guy. He did appear in uh, a 2014 horror short film called uh, Trouble, where he played a nameless gang member. But uh, it looks like Andor, uh, Andor is his first uh, big appearance. Nice. 
uh, poked around a little bit further. I did uh, find out he did graduate uh, from the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts in London uh, with a BA in acting uh, in 2019. So uh, hmm. just breaking in. I hope uh, I hope he's got a long career ahead of him. Mm-hmm. Our uh, Eurodel Vetch is played by a veteran uh, tall actor. Now, this is what twice recently we've had uh, discussion about extreme height, uh, yeah, actors. height actors. Uh, Ian White, Ian White, who has been a tall uh, character in a bunch of stuff. He played uh, the Scar Predator in AVP. He was also the Predator in its uh, sequel, uh, AVPR. We just we saw him, and actually his features you can see he was the last engineer in Prometheus, hmm. the guy that took the whatever it was that, that killed them. And he played another Eurodel, the same species that he's playing here in uh, the force awakens where he uh, was resistance quartermaster, Bully Prindle. Hmm. And uh, last but not least, he was the giant one, one in uh, game of Thrones. Hmm. Yeah. So lots of big roles for him. Well, meanwhile, back at uh, Tim's store, Bix comes in from the yard and she grabs her coat, uh, basically rushing to get out. Uh, and she doesn't even look at Tim. She's just kind of focused on whatever it is that's on her mind. Yeah. Tim says, where are you going? And uh, again, without making eye, to- uh, eye contact, she's like, she just says, Aaron's, and then uh, takes off out the door. And Tim at this point is like, he's kind of reaching the end of his rope. Yeah, like he's, he's like some suspicions. Going oh yeah. On. Like he's sh- he kind of does the whole, like <sighs> shakes his head and just kind of watches her through the window as she runs away. And, uh, he makes a decision that he's going to follow her. Yep. Uh, partly out of curiosity, I'm sure. Um, but I do think that there's a jealousy component there. Like Absolutely. I think he, I legitimately think, he thinks that maybe She's something off to meet Cassie. Yeah. Something is, is perhaps rekindling between the two of them. Well, Bix has a, a bit of a lead on Tim um, and Tim doesn't actually want her to see him. So he hangs back just far enough where he can keep her in sight, um, but far enough away that, you know, if he has to, he can still be concealed. But Tim is like, laser focused so much so that uh as he dashes down a long staircase he doesn't see another man coming out from a a building carrying a stack of metal boxes and they kind of run into each other and uh yeah in the resulting kind of moment there where they kind of spin around he ends up losing sight of her well he tries to catch up to her, gets down to the bottom of the staircase, but there's an intersection there with like several uh, branches and it's too late because she's already gone and, and he cannot find her. Um, one of the buildings on the staircase there, uh, before he runs into the guy, uh, the Orabesh there, it says droid, droid parts. Mm-hmm. So, uh, salvage is, is clearly the thing here. Now this stairwell is going to come up in episode three again. It comes up in, in, in multiple. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. This is actually the same staircase that Cassian uh, went down when he ran into uh, Nurchi and Vetch. Hmm. Yeah. Again, reused of sets, but reuse of sets, but they actually make a point to say that in the descriptive audio that, uh, you know, Bix runs down the same steps that Cassian just went down. So they're in the same vicinity neighborhood. Yeah. All right. Uh, Bix reaching the bottom of another staircase. She uh, enters a shop that's kind of uh, tucked into the corner. Uh, the Orabesh above the door that you can make it, it says R E P a, 
and then you get a wall. Um, I presume that if you were to be able to see the whole sign, it says IR for re- repair. Probably. But I'm just kind of extrapolating that. It'd be a good guess. All right. Um, inside the shop, the man behind the counter looks up to see her. Uh, recognizing Bix, he smiles, saying, oh, I haven't seen you in a while. And uh, Bix returns the smile, saying, well, some of us have to work. <laughs> this is so grounded, the small talk, though. Like, you know. Yeah, little jabs here and there. Are you working hard or are you hardly working? <laughs> the man says, uh, what are you looking for? And uh, taking a quick glance over her shoulder, she looks back at the man and she's like, uh, uh, bending mesh filter? Um, and this is a really, this is another cool one here. Um, did I do this? Let me just double check here. Did I slot this in here? 46, 47. Oh, I'm going to come back to that. Okay. I am going to come back to it. Uh, Bending is a Starship manufacturer. They made a ship uh, called the XR-12, and it's described as being smaller than an escape pod. And uh, apparently one of them ended up in Watto's junkyard. Hmm. But I'm going to come back to that. So... The man looks up hesitantly before um, turning back to Bix and he tells her, check the yellow racks at the back, adding that uh, she might have to dig a little. And she nods as she heads towards the back, uh, thanking the man on her way. That sequence, again, this whole sense of like the imposition that people are being put in. She says that she doesn't, uh, she doesn't make the call, you know, sort of for single items yeah. that she wasn't going to make Saves the call up for a month and- until the end of the month. Um, now he says, I haven't seen you in a while, but even still when she basically, when she says, uh, bending mesh filter, I mean, that's clearly a code. Yeah. Did you see the look on his face? He does the whole, he stares off at the ceiling, like, <sighs> and you think like, Maybe he's not going to go for it. Hmm? Okay. Well, you'd think you wouldn't want constant traffic going in and out of this location. Because uh, it's I definitely, for a reason. No, yeah, absolutely it is. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, anyway, adding that uh, she might have to dig a little. She nods as she heads towards the back, thanking the man on her way. Now, outside in the backyard, Bix passes through a courtyard. It's filled with, like, spools of wire and conduit. And uh, at the back of the yard, she crawls out of sight uh, when she kind of weaves her way behind several uh, hanging spools of wire. Uh, at the same time, the camera pans upward to uh, a silo with what looks like some kind of uh, radio antenna attached to it. We cut to an interior shot of the silo where Bix is seen climbing up a ladder. And uh, at the top of the ladder, just below the rim of the silo, she turns her attention to a junction box that's uh, fixed to the interior of the silo inside the junction box. There's a, basically a tangled mess of wires and what looks to be a rudimentary keyboard with like four or five keys. And uh, she sticks her hand in the box, uh, manipulating some, some of the wires, I guess. And uh, that switches something on and we get this uh, sequence of lights comes on. um, And then she pulls out a concealed earpiece. Well, she hooks her arm up against the ladder, puts the earpiece up to her head, and she starts uh, hammering out something on the keys. And as she's typing away and the camera starts pulling away, we get this distinctive sound uh, reminiscent of like some of the droid languages we've heard before, along with this like rhythmic electronic beeping. And she's making the call, as it were. 
All right. Our two people in the, uh, in the store, we have the young fellow there, uh, whose name is Wilmon. He's played by uh, young Mohanad Bahir, who played uh, the young Morgan Carey in uh, Mariah, the diva, the demons, the drama. And uh, the father, uh, whose name is uh, Salman Park, is played by Abin Galia, who was uh, Oedipus in the uh, Rome miniseries. And most recently, he played Zaman Isaya in Peacemaker. Nice. Yeah. All right, so I want to go back to the bending thing, the the mesh thing. So um, I couldn't, when you look up XR12, uh, the bending the ship manufacturer, mm. the only thing that I can find is that they made this one ship. Like there's no, like I don't think they made anything else, just this XR12. And so when you look up uh, XR12, there's no, there's nothing. Mm. So other than the fact that this, the XR12 is described to be smaller than an escape pod and that one of them landed or is uh, in Watto's junkyard. So that kind of took me down the rabbit hole. And uh, here's what I came up with. I think that what we are seeing here is what I think is the XR 12. It is uh, pod like very pod pod like. Yeah. It's small. And it, it is, I mean, it's there it's in, it's in Watto's yard. Um, and the reason that I think that this is a good match for it is that uh, it's actually a reuse of the EVA pod from uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. And as you're looking at it there, I mean, that clearly yeah. fits the description. Smaller than an escape pod. Like, it's, it's like a one. Arms on yeah, the yeah. Little thrusters on the side. I don't know if I'd call it a, sh- a ship, though. Yeah. More like a personal vehicle. Yeah, I'd just call it a pod but space bike interesting though like uh that it's a straight up reuse of another movie Mm -hmm. we see that all the time but i wasn't actually aware of this until putting this episode together that this actually was a was a thing but anyway that's my best guess on the uh the bending connection so cool little uh nugget Mm -hmm. that you had to dig for but hey it is there all right so Back on uh, Morlana 1, Deputy Inspector Karn moves to execute his plan. Uh, choosing to completely ignore uh, Chief Inspector Hine, Karn enters one of the security bullpens to address the three officers that are working there. And uh, spotting uh, this, their superior, the female officer, she rushes to get back to her console, telling her, her co-workers, look alive. Now, one of the officers, uh, who just happens to be uh, eating a, a dish, of uh, blue noodles shoves a mouthful in before saying, is he even allowed to approve overtime again? The, the mundane, like dudes eating at his desk, right? Like, Oh, he's having a work lunch. (laughs) Yeah. 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 The other male officer says, well, that's his problem. And uh, the first guy says, well, not if we don't get it referring to the overtime stepping up to the bullpen, Karn barks at the, at the three Ferrix. Well, the middle officer acknowledges that uh, they have been working on it, but they don't have any information on canary human males. They tell him that what they do have is a six-year-old imperial census. Well, Karn dismisses that because in his words, uh, six years, that's an eternity. Well, the female officer says there just isn't a lot of information on canary because it's an obscure planet. Obscure. 
and we're going to find out how obscure it is later on. Mm-hmm. But Karn says, well, that should make it easier. He instructs the three officers to put the word out and the vague description uh, on Ferrix. And one of the officers reminds him that Primor security doesn't exactly have a presence there. Rhetorically, Karn asks, is it not under our jurisdiction? And the officer says, well, technically... Karn, now frustrated with the three officers, says, we are simply asking for some information. And when the uh, the female officer asks him if he's ever been there, he raises his voice and says, what difference does that make? This and, is another one of those, you know, management not knowing what the rest do. Uh, absolutely. And she's like, she doesn't even, she's not even looking at him. Like, she can't even look at him in the eye. She's like, well, they have their own way of doing things there. Well, reaching the end of his rope, Karn shouts at them, this is the murder of two Primor employees. And like, it's a pin drop bink moment. Like everybody in the office kind of, huh? Yeah. For a, a brief second. But he quickly regains his composure and then he orders them to put out a blanket bulletin saying, Canary men wanted for questioning, adding, slam their channels, flood it. Uh, turning to leave on his heels he says set up a desk to monitor anything that comes through here uh, that comes in before shouting at them let's go um wow he's uh he's committed yep he's committed he's uh as we would say he's launched <laughs> and he's launching it in a vocal fashion like the chief said you know make it an accident we don't need this out there right now and he's just spreading it everywhere in his defense. And I know that we're meant to not like this character, but in his defense, he is acting on his conscience. True. He says it's unconscionable. I mean, that, that happens later, but it is, it's unconscionable for, to him that the death of two employees goes swept under the rug. Sure. That it's covered up, that it's not properly handled and he can't do it. And in that sense, I, I mean, I don't like him but I respect that choice, even though it's maybe not going to work out for him. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, let's go back and talk about the, uh, the, the food thing. Now we've seen, we've seen food items come up before in our shows. Mm. I don't think we've seen it really come up this way though. The dish that, uh, that officer is eating is, uh, uh glow blue noodles. Uh, this is a, a dish that first appeared in the junior novel uh, Pirate's Price, published by uh, Lucasfilm Press in uh, 2019. But that same year, the actual recipe appeared in the official Black Spire Outpost cookbook, hmm. um, which is the cookbook from uh, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge theme park. Nice. Now, in the book, it is attributed to the gourmet chef Gormanda. Now, this... <laughs> This is probably the most obscure, deepest, most wackiest, craziest uh, um, lore connection in the entire episode. And I, I kind of howled when, uh, when I saw it because I knew immediately um, what they were referring to. Actually, we talked about this just recently. Remember the Star Wars holiday special? Vaguely. Have you watched it yet? Uh, not completely. Not completely. Okay. Gormanda, if you don't remember, is the four-armed female host of the cooking show that Chewbacca's wife Mala is watching 
during the holiday special. Gormanda, of course, played by the legendary Harvey Corman. Now that is a deep dive. Yeah, I mean, is it cool? In a way, yes, yeah. it is. I mean, so, I mean, Gormanda to be canonized in print form uh, in the cookbook is one thing. Um, but to have uh, to have this dish show up in Andor, and it's a real dish. You can make it. Uh, it's a real noodle dish. It uses some kind of tea to basically dye your noodles blue. There's all kinds of, of uh, people have posted all kinds of photos. Hey, I made Gormanda's uh, 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 glow blue noodles. But anyway glow blue noodles there you go yeah star wars holiday special i miss harvey corman oh. uh such a great great comedian okay getting back to the seriousness now here uh back on ferrix uh we find cassian at what appears to be a used shipyard and I say that because if you look at the uh, the perimeter of the like the two rows of ships that are parked there, look at the pennant flags hanging there. Does that not scream used car lot? Yes, it does. <laughs> I love it. Um, by the way, there's a lot of expensive hardware here for a used car lot. Mm-hmm. I'll talk about that in a minute. All right, a burly man uh, with two Carillion hounds approaches the the ship that Cassian had used the night before. Um, and the man looks nervous as uh, he looks back over his shoulder. I, so there you go. Guy works at a used car lot. The implication here that, okay, you can take it. You know what I mean? Like you're yeah. taking a car off the lot and going and doing some, whatever you're going to do with it. Maybe it's a rental lot. I never thought about that. Rentals. Ship rentals. Ship rentals. Mm, maybe. Um, I doubt it though, considering the hardware that's sitting there. Yeah. All right. Looking up uh, the dog handler, whose name is uh, Pegola, asks Cassian, what do you think you're doing? Cassian remarks he forgot something and uh, he's just finishing up now. Well, Pegla remarks that uh, he, he is in the office, surely referring to the lot owner, his boss. Cassian says, uh, I refueled it just like you told me to. But Pegla spots something in Cassian's hand and asks, is that the ship's ID chip log? Um, we would just call it a transponder, mm. the, the IFF, the black box, as it were. The thing that the thing that allows other ships to detect you on radar, the thing that they need, why they couldn't detect him uh, in the traffic control center. Removing the evidence of where he went. Well, there is that minor detail. Cassian uh, remarks casually that uh, it's the old one, and now he's presently installing a new blank one. Well, just then a loudspeaker squelches and uh, the angry voice of, uh, of Pegola's boss, uh, a character by the name of Zorbi, rings out asking, what's going on out there? And Pegla toggles a comlink on his jacket, telling him that uh, he thinks that, uh, I think the yard rats are back as he stares at Cassian. Well, the loudspeaker crackles uh, to life again and Zorbi barks, get those hounds to start earning their keep. There's a customer out front. Well, Pegla turns back to Cassie and asking why he's changing the chip log, um, you know, saying you're going to get us in trouble. And Cassie and just super casual. I didn't like the way it was running last night. And, uh, you know, he says, so you're doing me a favor. 
And Cassian responds, you know, leave it better than you found it. Well, Pegla shoots back the way you always do, the Cassian way. And it's very seething the way that he says it. And uh, what? This is the third, fourth person that he's had yeah. a previous relationship with that he's now crossed. Yeah. Um, but this one is different in the sense that uh, Peglas tells Cassian to finish what he's doing. Uh, I don't want to know about it. I don't want to know what this is. Leave and don't come back. I don't want any part of it because no more deals, no more favors, just leave. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a bridge burned, like in grand style, I might add. Yeah. All right. Whistling for the two hounds, Pegla walks away, leaving Cassian to his uh, his own thoughts. I'll turn our attention for a minute to the uh, hardware sitting here in the yard. I poured over this, man, and it was hard. Some of it's quite obvious, actually. Um, it's Other, a, not so much. It's a really dense shot, and uh, there are no less than nine ships in that shot. I know it doesn't look like that, but there are nine ships in there, of which I could identify four of them <laughs> unfortunately i did not get i couldn't get the one in the foreground and i'm almost certain that we've seen it before it's got a i don't know almost a silhouette of a snow speeder but you know what it reminds me of now that i'm looking at it it kind of reminds me of the without the wings but you know the u-wing from uh rogue one mm -hmm. it kind of reminds me the the angle of the canopy reminds me of the u-wing hmm all right. If anybody out there who is watching this knows what that uh, class of ship is, please uh, drop it in the comments because I feel absolutely foolish. I, I feel like I've seen this before and for whatever reason, it escapes me. But we do have, um, on the one row, we have a Y-Wing fighter. Coincidentally, that Y-Wing is missing its engines, which kind of lends credence to the idea that maybe that ship that Cassian borrowed is using the engines from that ship. The other thing is further in, uh, down in the lot, one of the ships that I could not identify also has a Y-wing style engine on it. So the idea that they are cobbling together, taking uh, yeah. pieces and making yeah, yeah. what they will, we get just the the, the corner of uh, uh, sorry, I should say we've get we get um, a WTK eighty five A interstellar transport. Uh, or more commonly known uh, as Ochi's Legacy. That was the ship uh, Ochi of Bastoon from the uh, the sequel trilogy. We have the Lancer-class Pursuit Craft, uh, the most famous one of those being the, the Shadowcaster. We actually saw that ship in, uh, in The Mandalorian. It was parked on the ground at Navarro. We could see it through the canopy of the, mm. the Razorcrest at one point. Um, up in the top corner... Uh, there's a better shot of it later on in another episode, but it is there and I knew what it was. That is a VCX 100 light freighter. Um, the most famous one, of course, in Star Wars, the ghost from Star Wars Rebels. No fan service whatsoever. No, none at all. There is another like Carillion style uh, Millennium Falcon looking cockpit there on one of these ships. And I'm I just I don't know what it is. Same as the thing beside it with the Y-Wing engines. I don't know what that is, but man, I, I'm a ship guy. I love ships. So um, this was a, was a pretty cool, this was a bit of a glory shot for me. I'm like, ooh, I like this one. All right. So getting back to the matter at hand here, um, we got a mystery. 
bit of mystery in this scene. Who's the voice? Who's who's Zorby? I don't know either. Um, but I I have a suspicion. We've we've had mystery people before. You know how we 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 swore up and down that that Quarren was uh, Vincent D'Onofrio. Uh, that voice of Zorby, does it not sound an awful lot like, uh, um, JK Simmons, J Jonah Jameson? Maybe what's going on out there. I can't say for certain. And, and there, I have no way of knowing because Zorby does not even appear in the credits. And the only reason that we know the character's name is Zorby is that, uh, it's identified in the, uh, in the Better. subtitles. Pegla, on the other hand is a veteran actor, Kieran O'Brien, um longtime watchers of coronation street may recognize him as uh, craig lee and uh, he also played alan vest in uh, the band of brothers miniseries amongst many other things most most of it british television but he's been around for a long time all right mystery actor i don't know we'll find out maybe we won't maybe we won't maybe <laughs> who we knows will. who knows we're still waiting on confirmation for that corn I know it's the same thing too. Like uh, all the stormtroopers that never get credited, but you know, we find out later who they yeah. are flashing back to uh, Kenari, the uh, older children now armed with homemade uh, staffs prepare to leave their makeshift camp. Well, Carrie sits on the stairs of uh, her and her brother's tent uh, as she watches. Casa runs out from the tent and carrying his own staff. He's ready to join uh, the band. A few of the younger children kind of hang back in the village while the, uh, the alpha female uh, leads the older kids off into the forest headed towards the crash site. Casa runs to catch up and uh, Carrie, she follows him and she calls out to him. Well, the two of them have a small exchange uh, in the Canary language. And I imagine it's probably something like, no, you stay here. Please don't go. And, uh, he tells her to stay. And I think, you know, to me, it's like, a you know, it's okay. I'll be all right. Kind of thing. But I mean, the look says it all like this is the last time that he's going to see his sister. Mm-hmm. Casa linger, uh, lingers just a little bit longer looking at his sister and, uh, with a slight nod, he then turns and runs off to catch the group, leaving Carrie standing there, staring after them. Cut to black mm. and that that sir is our first uh first episode what do you think not bad after going through the review with you yeah it definitely uh it improves it for me i think so as well i mean we all kind of do because we had three episodes to do this week we split it up so that i i took the first one uh, Hank took the second and, and you took the third. So I, I'm sure I know that I spent way more attention to my episode than I did the other two. Cause I knew that, okay, we'll, we'll talk about it later. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like when you watch it under the, the, like, again, the microscopic versus the macroscopic analysis of the episode pulls out so much more. Yeah. There are so many times in this episode that it's like, oh, this relates to something that we're going to see in episode two or episode three. And it's really hard not to want to talk about it now. Yeah. But that's not the way it was presented. No. And that lends itself to what I said at the beginning when you really need all three episodes because they just work. They function as a, yeah, they work together. Um, 
maybe not as well individually but as a whole as a whole package mm, it's good mm. and i am again coming back to it and watching it now this is what uh wrapping up my show notes i've got uh, what three full viewings of the first episode under my belt now and um i'm sure if i was to go back and watch it a fourth time i would probably get some more stuff out of it i mean the big takeaway for me in this episode is just the the morality of the character and the morality not just for cassian but like the morality of everybody else around him and all those characters that we meet and what what are they what are they willing to do and what are they not willing to do it it keeps coming up back and forth but that's it for me that is episode one um anything you want to close on not that i can think of uh offhand here nothing that won't spoil future episodes but well that's okay because we, we do have to go yeah over. we've got two more to go to get those out and uh well that again that's the first episode it's called casa all right everybody stay tuned because this is just our first step into the world of uh, cassian andor and his journey towards the rebel alliance in our little review series here that we like to call Fandor. The titles are writing themselves. We'll be back soon with our next installment. So stay tuned because we'll be back very soon. Bye for now. Bye for now, everybody. Mm-hmm.